0: Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University. I'm Dan Seed from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication, and we're joined this month by Caitlin Hopkins, an award-winning actress, producer, and director from the world of theater, film, and television. She has Broadway credits to her name. She's appeared in more than 50 television shows, and she's the creator and head of musical theater in the Department of Theater and Dance here at Texas State. The program is ranked in the top 10 musical theater programs in the nation. And we are so happy to have her join us. Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. So I would run out of time if I listed all of your credits, right? (laughs) So we won't go there (laughs) there now, no, we won't go there now. But let's kind of start with your background. What
1: drew you into acting from the the beginning? You know, I come from a a long line of industry professionals. So that's the short answer. Uh, My mother was a wonderful uh, film, television and theater actress two-time Oscar nominee, Tony Award winner, multiple Emmy and Golden Globe winner. I mean, she she really did an extraordinary amount in her career. And I was raised watching her work in all those mediums. Her name was Shirley Knight. And my father was a theater producer and my stepfather was a screenwriter, television writer, uh, play both of them award-winning in their own rights. And, you know, so the whole family, I kind of grew up in it. I think I was around the arts from such a young age that that, you know, storytelling was so much a part of who I was and where I came from. I'm not surprised that that's ultimately where I, <laughs> where I ended up.
0: <laughs> was it a, I mean, you kind of touched on this, that it was a natural progression for
1: you, but was yeah. there ever any pressure with, with that family no. lineage to get you into You know, it's funny. That's a great question. Actually, the opposite. You know, it's so funny. I think when you want to go into something that your parents do, ultimately, they were actually like, are you sure? Are you really sure? Because if there's anything else that interests you, you probably should do that. This is really hard. You know, they were trying to protect us, you know, and it was, it's, it's very interesting. I have an older stepsister who lives in England and um, is an incredible scholarship. I think she's got three doctorates at this point, multiple, I mean, she's an incredible art historian and one of the foremost authorities on um, John Singer Sargent in the world and as an art lecturer and everything, that my older stepsister ultimately became a teacher and, and went into education, even though she came out of the arts. And my younger sister uh, used to write for television, has an MFA from Columbia in creative writing. And ultimately, she ended up teaching. She started with fifth grade, decided that she wanted them earlier, went to second grade, Decided she wanted to get on them even earlier and then became a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> She's like, I'm prepping them for you, K hop. I'm prepping them. I'm like, great, awesome. You know? Get get but, them ready early, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and my younger sister actually she lives in California. She works in a also a Hispanic serving institution. She she speaks and writes fluently in Spanish, and most of her students are uh, English is their second language. And so it's really um, sort of interesting that we all ended up in education, even though we all came out of the arts, and ultimately that that sort of led us in the same and different directions.
0: Let's get into that a little bit with, with your path, right? You know, what was the road like for you in terms of progressing in the industry? getting started in it. And then what ultimately did lead you to follow in that kind of family footsteps of of getting into education?
1: I would, you know, I started working professionally when I was 14. Uh, I did my first play. I did my first film when I was think eight, 17 or 18, and started working in television, you know, quite young, in my early 20s, I guess. And so I, you know, I had, I was very lucky, I had this incredible career in film and television and theater. I did comedy. I did drama. I did period pieces. I did, you know, musicals. I did operas. I worked in radio. I did voiceovers. I was on the Star Trek shows. In fact, my husband's been teasing me incessantly because uh, over the summer, I got to go to the 55th annual Star Trek convention. And I decided I was going to go and sign autographs and raise money for scholarships from a program. So that Yes, yeah, so I had a great time, but I have all these terrific photos with all the Star Trek fans, you know, all dressed up, and we we just had a great time. So it, it was a very sort of eclectic career, but mm-hmm. I was also raised by people who were activists. Like, my parents were activists in the 60s, you know, in the civil rights movement. Politically, I mean, just in, in every area that you could possibly imagine, my mother was out there, you know, making a stink about it. And so I think that I also was just sort of raised with the mindset is that part of your job, part of your reason for being on the planet, you know, is to give back. And so later in my career, I just felt like when I started producing and directing, I just felt like what I wanted to do is be in a room with young artists and help them in their journey, find their way and and be there to sort of support them finding their voices. Um, as artists and making a difference in the world. You know, I, I believe art is, being an artist is an act of service. I believe that, you know, we're here to serve our communities and it's through storytelling that we heal, we enlighten, we inspire, we make change in the world through that art form. I think artists impact culture and therefore they impact everything. <laughs> you know, it has the power to to really really make change. And that was what interested me, you know, was to help the next generation make some noise.
0: Well, they've been making noise in the the musical theater department here at Texas State. As I mentioned being a top 10 program in the nation, 2009, you created the program here. What has made this program such a
1: success? Honestly, I think I think the leadership Dean Fleming, uh, at the time when i when he recruited me to come here and build this program, he was our chair. And his vision for this department and for what he wanted for all of us, you know, it really it really starts with the leadership. I'll never forget the first time I went to a convocation that fall of two thousand and nine and heard President Trout speak for the first time. And like, it makes me emotional just thinking about it. Cause like, I remember sitting there and being like, oh my God, how did I find my way to this incredible place where I actually believe in this vision? I wanna support this vision that the university has that this theater department has. And I feel like I could actually make a difference and contribute to it. So to me, it if it hadn't been for the vision that this university had, that Dr. Trouth and John Fleming had, I wouldn't be here. So it starts there, but then it was also because they had, they trusted us, they trusted me to create a program that was all built under one umbrella, to recruit the faculty from scratch, to build it from scratch, to think about educating for the arts differently. I really had this vision of teaching the arts in a holistic way addressing mental health, addressing business of the business, you know, teaching them contracts, how to do their taxes, life skills, like not just how to whack their face and sing hi, right? But how do you live as a successful human in the world? And they were interested in letting us do that research and go on that journey and unpack the pedagogy and unpack sort of the way traditional arts education had been done in this country and they let us blow it up. I was like, I don't wanna do that. I don't think it works. I wanna build the program I wish I'd had. And they let me put together brilliant faculty. Like if I'm good at anything, I think it's just at facilitating, like recognizing genius in other people, recognizing greatness in other people. And I literally went and found the educators to be on faculty in this program that were true master teachers and master technicians at what they do, and were inherently collaborators. And they wanted to collaborate together with me to build something together in a holistic way, going in and out of each other's classrooms. I mean, it's not strange to have three faculty members in a classroom at any given time on any day. And then we went after the top talent in the country so the students also have something to do with that you know we were interested in building leaders we were interested in finding young humans who want to make a difference in the world who want to lead the art form forward who want to take responsibility for their communities and use what they do as as a medium to to make change so again we were kind of doesn't surprise me I was recruiting activists I was raised by activists right so right. I think I literally just did what I what I had been taught and this very extraordinary group of humans came together to build this program and I include the students in that you know we teach them and we believe that this is their program they pay our salaries they are paying us to give them a safe creative challenging environment to become their best selves and I believe that you know they should have agency in that in their education and in every aspect of it.
0: For a lot of people you know looking at a career that you've had professionally they would look and say you know the highlight or the biggest satisfaction must be Broadway or film or television but listening to you is it fair to say that this is the biggest accomplishment
1: or the best accomplishment yep. that you've yep. had? There's no even there's not even any comparison. Hmm. You know, you can't compare it. And I'll tell you why, because you know, I read an article once, I don't know if it's true, like the average person changes careers like six or seven times in their sure. lifetime, right? Something like that. I I thought that I was going to sing and dance and act for the rest of my life, right? That from the time I was four or five years old, that was what I wanted to do and what I thought I was meant to do and what I was pursuing. And over the course of those 30 some odd years, in anything, right, you, opportunities come sometimes in the places that you expect them. And then sometimes they come in places you didn't expect. And if you're brave, and you just kind of say, well, sure, I'd love to learn how to produce television. Oh, really, you're going to give me an opportunity to direct? I, I, yeah, I'd like to try that, you know? And you you sort of evolve, right? It's like accumulating stuff as you go in your journey. And looking back, I was sort of a jack of all trades and a master of nothing, right? I tried everything because I, w- I got bored very easily and I was interested in everything. I wanted to learn how to do voiceovers. And then I did it and I was like, great, now what am I gonna do? Like, what else right. can I do? You know, I did an opera and I was like, oh, that was really fun. I learned a lot, I don't ever wanna do that again. else do i want you know i kept sort of like accumulating experience and looking back i recognize now that every single day of that was about me actually preparing to do this i just didn't know that i didn't know that i was inherently a teacher and an educator and that actually all of that wasn't about me what it was actually about was me being able to then comprehensively pass that to the next generation or to other educators or whatever And so, yes, it's the most satisfying thing I've ever done. It's the hardest damn thing I've ever done. yeah. Hardest damn thing I've ever done in my life. And every day it challenges me. And I hope, I feel as if I have grown as a teacher, you know, over the last 12 years or something that we've been here. I feel like every day has been about my students teaching me how to be a better teacher, you know, not just about me serving them. So that's been incredible. You know, when you, you know, I'm 57 and you wake up one day and you're like, wow, I've spent the last 13 years of my life learning a new skill. <laughs> and, and every day and every day and every semester every, and every, every
0: student. Yeah. Every
1: day with every student, with every change in curriculum, with every class we changed. I mean it it is a fluid curriculum our curriculum and our classes literally change every year because it is a changing art form and a changing landscape and because of that right you you have to have movement and and it has to be fluid you have to continually update it and uh, make sure that it's representative of the current market and what the students need now not what they needed 20 years ago if that that's irrelevant now Actually, what they needed five years ago, Dan, is irrelevant now. What they needed three years ago is irrelevant now, right? I mean, it's such an exciting field of study because it's so present in the moment. So it's based foundationally in techniques, Mm -hmm. technique in different areas. However, the pedagogy and the application and all of that is absolutely changing all the time and never more so than right now.
0: Why so? Why so changing right now? Is it from coming out of the pandemic or
1: multiple factors? Well, it's it's coming out of the racial reckoning in this country, and it's coming out of the pandemic. And you literally took, it was as if God has a very bad sense of humor, and took the two largest events that could single-handedly not just change our world, but change our the art form and the career profession that I'm in, and they had them happen at the same time the pandemic hasn't just changed how we educate because it has changed how we educate. It also has changed what we educate. The racial reckoning in our industry, in this country, and ultimately in my industry, the musical theater art firm was built on a racist foundation, period. Like there's no, there's no negotiating that, right? That like, it was, it is. If you go and you learn musical theater history, it is white centered and, it is a racist art form. And there has been an enormous amount of unpacking and researching of that pedagogy, of the vocabulary that's used in that pedagogy, how it's delivered, how do you train, especially in this environment, where over 50% of our student body or student student body are students of color. You, <laughs> you, you know, you you have to have culturally responsive teaching methods you must practice anti not just anti-racist pedagogy but anti-racist theater pedagogy is a very specific like and the faculty we're all learning as we go right because it's a whole new way that we have to approach how we teach we also have whole new techniques that that have come up as industry standard in the last few years like intimacy training and anti-racist theater pedagogy, right? Like there's all of these new techniques that we are literally learning as a faculty. We, We are having to do training and certification in order to teach effectively to today's art form and the market, which literally is completely exploded and imploded and is completely changing. All the leadership hierarchy, everything in our industry is being examined it's an exciting time to be a teacher it's a it's an and to be a student because you're like well i don't know what do you think <laughs> yeah, that feedback right that that interaction what are you yeah it's. Yeah. It, 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 you know my students will be like K, k-hop what what about this and i'll be like oh honey i have no idea do you, what do you think
0: you know which, like which yeah, is fantastic that, that, that you're able to say that right That that too often people I feel like they're in the expert position right and that that they can't move off that and say
1: i don't know right And well, so well, we, when, well also what we knew six months ago is different than what we knew a year ago which is different right. when, so you know we literally went in and did an entire overhaul of every single syllabi every course in our curriculum and reimagined it and rethought it and had meetings with our alumni meetings with our current students meetings where they're like okay You know, how how do we navigate the fact that, sure, there's stuff that you always teach, but everything else is kind of, it's like you're throwing pasta at the wall. You're making it up as you go along. But you got a lot of really great people that are helping you do that, Mm -hmm. including your students. It's arguably the most exciting time in our industry and art form. You've mentioned a few times, going back to the changes
0: in curriculum and Mm -hmm. just the way that you all operate this holistic approach. And one of the things that I know that you are involved with, you're the co-founder of Living Mental Wellness, which works with performance artists to enhance their mental wellness through a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about that and the importance of that in the industry at a time when, as you said, there's so much reckoning happening and just so much upheaval that people are taking care of themselves in a way that can help them sustain themselves in a difficult industry.
1: Yeah. And I don't think our industry is alone in needing to take a long, hard look at work-life balance. Okay. We've got a lot of professions, nursing, business, right? We've got a lot of different schools here at the university and professions that I think everyone has been through so much trauma and it's going to take a while for everyone's resilience and stamina to rebuild. But all of us recognize that we shouldn't go back to what we were doing. <laughs> because our, you know, our art form is like, oh, the show must go on, you know, and it's a it's a medal of, of pride and professionalism to kill yourself for your art form, right? To sacrifice your family, your kids, anything and everything right for the show, your physical health, your mental health, everything. And so quite a few years ago, I was like, yeah, that, that doesn't work. It's because it's not sustainable. So if we look at what is our job as educators, regardless of what profession perhaps, what is our job? It's to teach them tools and techniques that are healthy, sustainable, and repeatable. That's what I think. So I started asking that question in every class of every faculty member. I was like, okay, are we in fact doing this in a healthy, sustainable, repeatable way? And if not, what changes do we need to make so that our students have practices, habits, and techniques that are healthy, sustainable, and repeatable? Because you can't have success in life or your career without that. Sure. Right. And everybody's compromised right now. I, I, you know, I'm sure I I would be surprised to find a faculty member at the university right now that doesn't feel that their students are compromised right now emotionally, Mm -hmm. absolutely exhausted and frightened and questioning everything. So I don't know how you just teach the class the same way as if that's not happening. So what living mental wellness, what we did is we did a lot of research, not just with uh, performers, but with athletes as well, who are very, very high risk demographic. And we did a lot of research. And what we proved is that if you improve students life skills, you decrease their mental health symptomology. So if you can reduce their stress, you're going to reduce their likelihood of having more serious mental health issues and and just managing their daily stressors better. So what we did is we incorporated it into uh, all incoming freshmen, actually, not just in my program, but now in the entire department of theater and dance, we have over a thousand majors in our department and all our incoming freshmen and new faculty take the curriculum now because we put it online so people, it's just seven online modules, but it covers science of the brain, how the body works under stress, mindfulness techniques, you know, basic brain science so that you understand how to, you learn tools and techniques to learn how to self-regulate your nervous system, heal your nervous system, meditation. And then the life skills are a developmental model. And what Dr. Hilary Cawthon proved in her research with the athletes is that if you taught these life skill skills in this particular order and utilize them together, that you were going to significantly reduce mental health issues because you're you're going to have higher life skills, right? So those are time management, goal setting, coping skills, communication skills, leadership skills, and problem solving skills. So each module covers one of those life skills and then sort of utilizes them all together. And what we've discovered is, you know, we have some of the highest academic achievers at the university and some of the highest retention rates at the university. So what that leads me to believe is, you know, I often hear like, oh, how do we do better with retention rates? You know, we're still losing 20% of our freshmen. I'm like, yeah, okay. Cause we're not actually helping them navigate one of the largest, most stressful transitions in their lives. And it's not just about having an academic advisor at the Peace Center.
0: Right, um, it's about educating the whole person. That's, that's, right. Right, right, I mean, that's, that's, that's the mission.
1: Point. Now you can you can throw more counselors, right, at the counseling center. You can throw more money that, at that, but that's intervention-based. It's not prevention-based, right? And the whole right. idea of holistic training and this idea of building in some life skills, I think if someone was to ask me, If there was anything I could change in the world, what would it be? Here's my answer, is that education stops assuming that every single child that comes into an educational environment has the same level of life skills, especially when we're serving a demographic that are largely first-generation students, lower-income students. You're serving a demographic that's at higher risk anyway. So why do you assume that they're all coming in with the same level of time management skills, goal setting skills, leadership skills, problem solving skills, communication skills, coping skills? If you gave them some of those skills, maybe they wouldn't get so sick. By the time they're we're redlining, right? And I'm taking a kid up to counseling center, and they can't get an appointment for two weeks anyway. Like it, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, can you back it up? Right. And if you put those life skills in high school or in middle school, right? Do you then? Because by the time they get to us, they're already in trouble. So a lot of the stress-related illnesses that we're seeing on a massive scale in higher education are largely because we're not therapists. We shouldn't be. <laughs> but skill but set, tools, that's different. That is right. our
0: job. Yeah, providing those skills for people along with the education. Like I said, educating the whole person is, yep. is part of, part of what we should do. To that point, I guess, you know, last year, obviously, difficult year for everybody. We were teaching our TV news courses online. Very difficult to do. You can't go out. You can't you're right. You're not in a studio. For you guys, I can't imagine what that experience was like and the difficulty that people had not being able to do what they love in the environment that it's intended for. What was it, what was that experience like for you all to continue a program that relies so much on in-person in a virtual world?
1: It was really hard. I can imagine. Yeah. It was really, really hard. But I am a firm believer that challenge leads to opportunity. And the opportunity it gave us, which is what I kept saying to the kids, the students, when we would sort of all meet on Zoom and you know, have long conversations about how do we navigate this? How do we how do we approach this class? How do we approach this class? Do we wanna move it to next semester? Do we wanna wait to learn, you know, how do we adjust it so that we can still meet our learning outcomes? And if we can't meet our learning outcomes then we need to think about it, we're gonna to have to do something else, right? So how do we do that? And ultimately I felt as difficult as it was that it was a really extraordinary opportunity to think about things differently, to use your imagination, to think about different delivery systems to achieve the same goal. Is it as fun as being in person? Of course it's not as fun as being in person, but can we do it? And ultimately the answer was yes. Like 90% of that curriculum, we translated online and we did it. And at the end of the semester, I'm like, well, at the end of the semester, I'm even gonna have either have the worst evals of my life from my students. Or, or not, you know, like, right, yeah. you're like, no, they really tried really hard. <laughs> right. right. And ultimately, you know, the conversations we have with the students are like, we actually had a great semester. We're not sure how we did that. Like, we we really learned a lot. Like, we got so much out of it. But a lot of that was because the students were willing to step up to the plate with us and figure out, have that experience together and really talk about it and talk through it. And again, that just comes back down to communication skills and collaboration, doesn't it?
0: Right, yeah, it, it comes It comes back to that involving them in the you know, discussion to
1: formulate yeah. how we're going to do it. I'll tell you one of the things that I'll tell here's a great, I'll give you a really short, but great example of an opportunity that happened because we were virtual that never, ever, ever would have happened if we had been in person. I never could have afforded to pay or transport 14 of the top award-winning, Tony award-winning choreographers in our industry to the likes of Anne Ranking. We were the last masterclass she taught before she died. Andy Blankenbuehler who created Hamilton, I'm sure you know, and you know all of our great, literally our most famous and our most respected Broadway choreographers. I reached out, I sent an email to, I think 14 in total saying listen i'm really in trouble i i can't give these poor kids an in-person dance class this semester is there any way you would consider doing a zoom q a or a zoom dance class with them over the you know just once I, i mean i got like 200 bucks i can give you i don't have a lot of money but would you you know i'll give it to your favorite charity you know whatever like
0: we just right,
1: right. come yeah, help these them. poor musical theater students get through this semester. I need them to have something to look forward to. I need them on Fridays, once a week, just to have something to look for every every two weeks, anything, right? An hour, two hours. Well, I thought maybe two or three of them would say yes, Dan. And what ended up happening is that every Friday for the entire semester, not for one hour, but for three hours. Oh my God. Every Friday. One of those choreographers said, of course, every one of them said yes. And every Friday, these kids were like, Who's coming this week? I'm like, You're not gonna believe it, you're not gonna believe it. You're ready, you're ready. And they would all get on Zoom, like, you're ready? Guess who's coming? And I mean, I'd say, you know, Camille A. Brown or Sergio, you know, Christopher Catelli or Andy Blankenbuehler, and Ryan King. When I said I'm Ranking and Susan and I thought, I mean, they're just like screaming on YouTube, like on you know, Zoom, like screaming, they're so excited. And to have this opportunity to work with those Broadway choreographers and create relationships with them—I And I mean, it was amazing. That never mm-hmm. would have happened if we'd been a person. No, of course,
0: but we had—but we right. had to
1: think about it differently,
0: as you said. We have to think about it differently. And I think all in that position, some did better than others. Like, I mean, you're pulling in this cast of famous oh, choreographers, so which is which yeah. is absolutely amazing. Clearly, you've taken a lot from that experience, and and I'm sure. You, what you've learned in that experience into coming back to normal, so to speak, this year, but what's the energy like now, now that you are back to normal to a sense to where now you're you're back to the live productions is the energy level just through the roof with the students what, what, are, what are you getting and even from your faculty.
1: Well, yes and no, right. So back back to normal is a relative term, Dan. right. <laughs> I use normal in air quotes, but you can't see me do air yes, quotes on a podcast. Yes. I'm, so I'm not sure what about the normal part. Right. Um, it's close. It's better. It's better. we're We're definitely in a better situation than we were last year. And so there was deep excitement and energy and passion coming back into the semester. There was also fear, apprehension, Because if a performing artist, we're basically athletes, right, and we are dependent on our body and our respiratory system, one of our kids gets sick, that's potentially a career-ending injury. Sure. Okay. So I've also got kids who are like, we are wearing masks, right? We're all going to test every week, right? We're all going to, yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, babies, don't worry, because they're like, because they're different, they're not making people do it. And I was like, yes, I understand that. But for our kids, like, they are not going to take a risk with the rest of their lives and their careers. So I don't know what it's like everywhere else on campus, but you walk into the theater building and every faculty member and every student in the Department of Theater Dance is wearing a mask in every single class, every dance class, every acting class, every voice, it doesn't matter. Like, we are still in masks. Now, for performance, we're coming up with all kinds of crazy protocol so that the students can perform without masks in a safe way. And this is just what the students wanted. Not about like, we're not saying, well, you must do this. No, the students are like, hey, how do we do this in a healthy, safe way and still get to be in person? They just want to be in classes together. They just want to be dancing and singing and doing what they love and going to rehearsals. And they really believe that's the you know the safest way to do that. Um, And I agree with them. So yeah, everyone's excited, but also, you know, being really responsible and kind of potting and, you know, like just doing what we all feel we need to do so we can stay in person because being in person doesn't mean staying in person. And so we're all just kind of taking every precaution that we, we can, the audiences will come back and, and get to see shows without masks, which is very exciting unless someone tests positive right and then we got understudies. So we'll have to go on. <laughs> Man, everything may change if, if that happens. However, um, you know we've we've got gosh two plays we got a play running this weekend through this weekend called El Naguilar. It's being performed one every other evening in English and every other evening in Spanish. It's a beautiful play. We have another play end of October called Yellow In. And then Hair is our musical this semester, and uh, November sixth through the twenty-first, Hair is playing. And in the spring, we're doing Macbeth, we're doing Suzakle, we're doing a play called Gloria. Th- there's just so much going on in that Performing Arts Center that is so exciting. The plays and the musicals that we are doing—that's when you're going to see that energy, Dan. When those kids get to go on that stage and and perform for the first time without Moss. that's going to There's gonna be a lot of tears in the audience that night.
0: Well, I know that I'm excited because the work you guys do is fantastic. Um, You know, it's just such a vibrant part of our campus life and to have it it back in this way with a full slate of productions is very exciting. So, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great interview, very interesting. And I think after listening to this, Hopefully people out there now understand why it's a top 10 program, not just the students, but but the faculty and, and the work that you all put in. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dan. And thank you all for downloading and listening to Big Ideas. We'll be back next month. Until then, stay well, stay healthy, and stay informed. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by
1: Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.